The Candid Frame is supported by donations by listeners just like you. You can support the show by clicking on the donate button on the website or in the show notes. This episode of The Candid Frame is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Use the offer code CANDIDFRAME at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. This is Ivarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. I remember a time when being a wedding photographer wasn't something you wanted to admit to. At least among the photographers who I was around, primarily aspiring photojournalists, wedding photographers were people who couldn't hack doing something else. It was a very short-sighted perspective then, but it's especially wrong now with some of the world's best photographers being wedding photographers. Yes, I know a typical wedding day is sort of predictable in terms of the key moments such as the cake cutting, the first dance, the first kiss. But the best wedding photographers know that the real magic happens in those in-between moments. The moments that most people are not looking for something special to happen. In these genuine, spontaneous moments, there are moments filled with love, tenderness, and humor. This is the stuff that real memories are born from. Paul Giraud is a photographer who knows how to capture just such moments. After enjoying a career as a professional photojournalist, he transitioned to a career as a portrait and wedding photographer, creating a thriving business here in Southern California. To look at his work, you immediately get a sense that Paul loves people and he loves what he does. And he's taken that love and passion and experience to create his latest book, Master Digital Wedding Photography. It provided me a great excuse to sit down and talk with him again and gain some great insight into what it takes to not only be a great wedding photographer, but how you can create a lasting business doing what you love. Well, Paul, welcome to The Candid Frame. It's a real pleasure to have you on the show and to talk to you about your, um, your new book. But I wanted to start off by asking you why you're so passionate and so good at wedding photography. You started off as a photojournalist and, and you know, you did portraiture, but, you know, you have a, a real special affinity and fondness for wedding photography, and I'm wondering why. I think part of it is, is I really value the natural moment, the real moment. Now, some people might say that a wedding is already kind of an orchestrated event, but I always feel like there's a lot of natural moments that happen within the structure of a wedding day itself. The other thing is it allows me to do a lot of different things that I like to do. Moments, portraits, details, capturing beauty, telling a story. And we've got people who actually want me there. They don't want to put me behind a yellow tape and say, you're not wanted. Mm -hmm. They actually really want me there. And so it was everything I always wanted as a photojournalist was to have access to people, to see something beautiful, and to tell a story. And this one has a real arc, a real story, beginning, middle, and end. And I found that um, it was the perfect thing for me, especially after I met my wife at a wedding. So it just seemed like the kind of the signs were pointing for me to, to do wedding photography after almost 20 years in journalism. What, what was the most challenging thing about making that, that transition? I think part of it, there's twofold. It's one thing to get an assignment from a newspaper and be on staff and know that you're going to be, in a way, taken care of. It's another thing to actually step out on your own and have to go out and find work, find people. You have to become a marketer. You have to become a salesperson. And sometimes that's tough if you've been used to kind of like almost cradle to grave corporate journalism. So that was tricky. But then there was also kind of like the photo societal expectations. It's like that kind of looking down your nose at, oh my gosh, I guess he's just not making it anymore as Mm. a photographer because he's now doing weddings. And so getting over kind of that social stigma of being 
a wedding photographer. I mean, photojournalists can be kind of snobby about that. And that, so. must have, and that must have been tough because you had that attitude towards wedding photographers. So oh, making gosh, the choice was, to do that and to tell your friends and your coworkers, I'm going to do weddings, that must have been really tough. Well, yeah, it was. And it took me a while to kind of wear the badge with honor. Yeah. Because when I went to Perpignan, which is this bastion of photojournalism greatness, about a year or so after I left the newspaper, I was always like, oh, I used to be a news photographer. Now I'm a wedding photographer. And it was like, you can almost hear the sad trombones playing. But it was like, it took me a while to kind of own it. And now I'm proud to say that that's what I do. It's not the only thing I do. I really think of myself as a photographer who happens to take portraits and weddings. Yeah. And I, I photograph life. My kids love the people around me. I just feel like this is a real natural extension of who I am and who I've become. You know, you know a lot of wedding photographers, you know, people who are who have been doing it for quite a while, very accomplished. You also know people who sort of dabble in it probably as well. People get into wedding photography for different reasons, some strictly financial, some because of, cre- you know, uh, they see it as a creative outlet. But when you think about the people that you know, and even probably yourself, what do you think makes a really great wedding photographer as far as the attitude that they bring to the work? I think everybody's got their own criteria, but because I come from a background of real documentary photojournalism, I find the authentic moment is the thing that stands out for me when I see a photographer's work that I really love. If they can capture a moment as it happens, without prompting, without setting anything up, to me, that's the real art in it, and that's what I love about photography. There are a lot of photographers that do really fine work and more posed work and more fashion-y kind of work, and that's kind of that genre of wedding photography. But the stuff that really resonates for me is real moments as they happen, and it's always been that way. I mean, going back to seeing Cartier-Bresson's work, you know, I just found that if you could capture life as it happened and put a really cool frame around it, that made it extra special. Yeah. I think that when I look at some photographers' work, I mean, especially now since, you know, uh, wedding photography has sort of come into its own over the last probably 10 or 15 years, uh, where it's not like the bastard child of photography anymore, you get to see some incredibly talented photographers doing amazing, amazing work. And it speaks to this idea of people per- pursuing the, uh, the moment. But I think it's probably the most challenging thing to be able to do not only effectively but consistently because with all the pressure on that day you have to be able to put aside your anxiety anxiety the craziness of all the stuff that's happening around you and get into a place where you are so observant of everything especially the small nuances the the expressions the reactions being able to anticipate a moment that it's probably, I imagine, the, the greatest challenge for any photographer, but especially a wedding photographer. What helped you sort of to get to the place that you would be conscious enough and aware enough that when those moments happen in front of you, that you're ready to capture it and, and, and not miss it? The best training was newspaper training, but even that wasn't enough because there's a certain arc to the story at a wedding and... That saved me, in fact, in my early wedding work because I had such a strong journalism background that I could kind of save my own bacon sometimes mm-hmm. when, as, as I look back on some of that stuff now, there's things I needed to strengthen. Like I needed to get better at portraits and I needed to get better at sometimes taking control in certain situations like really owning the portraits and not just relying on just documentary kind of portraiture, but really like saying, okay, these are going to be like magazine quality portraiture. I want them to really look awesome because that's a valuable part and a valid part of the day. But the more I did it, the better I got. And it was like when I used to cover football, NFL football, when I first started to cover that sport, it used to happen so, so fast. And it would be hard to shoot it with a 300 millimeter lens. But then as I got better at it, the more I went, the better I got shooting it with a 400-2.8 with an extender became really a lot easier because I just began to see the whole field. You could almost, it's almost kind of like what Gretzky said about when you 
are seeing where the puck's going to go, mm-hmm. it's the same thing about weddings. You begin to kind of anticipate where things are going to happen. You begin to see the signs. And it's I just look at the day as just a banquet because I just know it's going to be a photo frenzy. Yeah. There's going to be great photos there no matter where I go because wherever people gather, there's a potential for great photos. And now I just kind of roll with it and I try not to put too many expectations about what it should be and let it be what it is. One of the most interesting sections in your book, Mastering Digital Wedding Photography, is a section you, where you talk about shooting like a, a newswire photographer. Yeah. And I thought that was awesome. T- tell us about that. I thought that was really interesting. Well, when I went to Washington when I was a kid, I was so wet behind the ears. I just was in so far over my head. But I learned a lot because those folks got it dialed in. And if you look at how the wire services, especially like the Associated Press, covers the president, they always have somebody front and center. Then they will defer to that 45 degree or the cutaway angle. And then they might have a profile, but that's kind of a low percentage shot. And then there's almost always like a, if you see like the State of the Union, not the, well, yeah, State of the Union, but like a press conference in the East Room or something like that, they might have a photo shot from the back, from behind with a remote camera that shows the president with the reporters and gives you that kind of feeling mm-hmm. of being there. But you look at the percentages and you play the percentages and front and center is probably 80%. The 45-degree angle cutaway is probably 15%, and the other two angles are virtually 1-2%. They're, they're much more lower percentage. And so you begin to know where you need to be to get that angle. So you're always looking to get in the front of somebody or on the side of somebody because you want to look in their eyes. Yeah. And so when you break it down like that, it really – you begin to kind of like know where to position yourself. And you realize that, yeah, there's a 360 degree area around your subjects, but there's probably three or four areas that are the optimum places to be. And that's kind of what that's about, is really minimizing your choices so that you can optimize your opportunities to make great photos. Yeah. One of the great things you do in the book is that you break down the wedding into these, basically these chapters, you know, you're telling the story of the wedding, but you break it down into chapters and you provide recommendations in terms of equipment, uh, the point of view to shoot from, uh, whether or not you're going to be including flash, all these considerations. And I, and I really like that those sections weren't dense, you know, that you didn't have to read hundreds and hundreds of pages. You got just the information that you needed. But I thought that that information was incredibly valuable, even though each section was very abbreviated. Tell us why you wrote those sections the way that you did and why you thought it was an important part of what you were writing. Because I wanted this book to be something that you could go back to multiple times and pick out areas that would apply to where you're at. But so you could also have basically almost like a cheat sheet of breaking down the structure of a wedding. And then I wanted to go into more depth in the back of the book so that you would actually have a little bit more, you know, a little bit more room to wiggle. But I wanted, I wanted the reader to get the essence of the book so that if they saw that, that middle part of the, the book that had from the beginning to the end of the day, they could actually feel like, oh, okay, I think I could do this. Now, I don't recommend that folks just go in without any experience doing wedding photography because it basically, you know, kind of it presupposes a certain general, uh, you know, pretty solid knowledge of basic photography like mm-hmm. shutter aperture, ISO control. So if you get to that point, and but if you get built into a situation where you have to make a wedding photograph, I hope that that book might help somebody. And my f- previous book that I wrote in 2004 I've had people contact me and said they had a wedding to do for a family friend and they didn't know where to start and that book got them started. Mm. So at least they felt like they could have a little bit of a blueprint. Well, I wanted this book to go beyond what that book was because for one, I've learned a lot more since then. My tools have changed, my techniques have changed, but also the way I approach it has changed a bit as well. So I wanted to make it more current, more relevant, and hopefully a little bit more of the kind of oomph get somebody in there so that they could learn what I need, what, what I use actually, and, and hopefully it'll help them 
make their coverage better. What were some of the things that you felt you learned that really helped you since in between that book and and this book? Can you point to one or two things that you felt like were... Definitely. Well, back then, I was kind of trying to be a minimalist when it came to lighting. And it's not that I didn't know how to light. It's just that I had come from almost 20 years in journalism, and I was kind of tired of having to do that. I thought this would be a way to not do lighting, if you know what I mean, or just Mm -hmm. rely on portable flash. Now, I don't cast any aspersions against anybody who does just use a portable flash or a handheld flash to do it, but I just feel like that what I've got to do um, now is bring everything I know to bear to make the coverage be what I want it to be. And by that, I mean, if I need to light it with a Dynalite strobe and an Octabox to get the quality of light that I want for the group in that particular space, I'm going to bring it. And so I'm not going to worry about just trying to keep it to a small bag. Yeah, if I can, great, but I'm going to use whatever tool I need. And that's a big change from where I used to be. So now I'm like thinking the portraits are like, okay, we're going to shoot portraits like we're shooting them for Fortune or or for uh, Sports Illustrated or for ESPN Mm -hmm. or the documentary work as if it's for Geographic or something like that. So back to what I used to do when I was freelancing and when I was starting in newspapers. Those magazines became my benchmark, and now it was time to bring them back into the wedding world, no matter what. What what anybody thought, I didn't care. I was going to do it this way because I felt like it was the best way for me. Yeah. Well, in in the book, you talk a lot about equipment, uh, equipment that you use. Yeah. But I got to tell you, there was one big omission that I wanted to talk to you about. When I and for me okay. is the most important piece of equipment that any wedding photographer has to have, and I really wanted to know what it is for you. And for, and then my question is socks and shoes. Oh yeah, that's true. <laughs> so what what do you prefer prefer? Because for me. When I'm working for extended periods of time, I got to tell you, my feet just ache at the end of the day. And I, yeah. I, it's been a while since I did a wedding, but I remember how much my feet and my legs hurt. So you do this often. So what, what's, your, what's your solution for you know, maintaining your feet and your legs for extended periods of time? It's funny because a friend of mine, Robert Evans, who's a Sony artisan, he does weddings. He wears two pairs of socks. And I'm not uh. sure what shoes he wears, but he wears two pairs of socks. Now, I don't do that, but what I'll do is I had a pair of Echoes, which were very good shoes, kind of, I think they're European, and they lasted me for almost 10 years until I literally cracked the, the sole and could not be replaced and repaired. But I'm using these, these relatively inexpensive Nunbush shoes that were like 60 bucks at Kohl's. There weren't that, but they have like kind of like a rubber air sole, like a running shoe, mm-hmm. but they've got a, uh, like a kind of a dressy upper. So I'll typically wear those. And then I've got a pair of these new balance shoes that you often see like hospitality workers wear, yeah, you know, like uh-huh. waiters and waitresses. So at the reception, I'll often switch into those because I figure by that time, people aren't going to be looking at my feet, especially if they have a couple glasses of wine. They're not going to be seeing that. So I may switch shoes out. But the other factor in this is weight because if your cameras are lighter it's more weight on it's less weight on your hips and your knees and your feet so i find that lightening the load has really made it easier for me to physically handle it on my feet yeah too and you were a canon shooter and now you're a sony you sony and you're a sony artist in the yeah. imagery so i'm sure that that size and weight have been a big factor in 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 your work yeah Tell me about why you like working with the smaller form form factor as opposed to working with a, uh, a big DSLR. What difference does it make practically? You know, when you get to be 50 and you've been doing this for a while, <laughs> you begin to realize, you know, if I don't have to carry that, do I want to carry it? And so in 2012, I had uh, a 5D, 5D Mark II, well, actually a couple old 5Ds and a bunch of version one Canon zooms. And they were getting a little long in the tooth. And I knew I had to retool. And I was like, oh, I don't want to buy two 5D Mark III's, even though I knew they were good. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to buy the version two zooms and, you know, use the fast aperture primes. I was like, God, there's got to be something better out there. So I was on this quest to find something smaller that let me do what I 
wanted to and I started looking at mirrorless and I started by looking at Samsung and then I looked at Lumix and then I looked at Olympus and then I looked at Fuji and I just none of them really I mean Fuji was probably the closest thing to what I was after but I just couldn't get the autofocus to work so I was about ready to give it up and it was in 2014 and my good friend Pat Murphy Racy from Knoxville, who's also a Sony artisan, had been doing a lot with Sony, even though he was a Nikon Canon shooter for his career. Because he was doing video, he was doing a lot more Sony stuff. And he goes, you got to try the A6000 and the 70 to 200 F4. I was like, oh, God, do I have to? <laughs> and so I rented it. And within like a minute, I knew that this was going to change the way I was doing things because it was this tiny little camera and the 70 to 200 was relatively small, about the same weight as the 70 to 200 Canon. And I knew it would focus and track focus. And I was like, this is where I'm going to go. Mm-hmm. And so I, I had kind of gotten rid of most of my Canon stuff because I wasn't sure where I was going to go. Then I bought some used gear in the process waiting to see. And then once the, once I saw the Sony stuff, I said, I'm going that way. And that's what happened. And I, it was before even version two of the A7 series came out. So it was pretty early adopter to it, not as early as like Brian Smith and people like that and Robert Evans. But I knew that mirrorless was going to be in my future. Yeah. And I'm really happy about it. You know, I think one of the things that um, I think about in transitioning, because I'm in like in the middle of, of transitioning my, myself, I've sold my Canon gear and I've been trying a variety of different mirrorless systems. I haven't really settled on anything, but I think one of the things for me is, is muscle memory. You know, when it comes to a camera, it's just getting really so comfortable with the camera that I don't have to be, I don't have to think about it, that I can right. access ISO, sh- shutter speed, aperture, white balance, so instinctively that I don't lose, lose the moment. And for someone who is using, you know, DSLRs for so long, working with not only with a smaller camera, but with, you know, different configuration, different choices in terms of controls and settings. I mean, you really can't be preoccupied with that when you're shooting a wedding. So as you were transitioning, what did you need to do to get to the point where the camera wasn't standing in your way and it, and you were free to be able to do what you do? It's funny that you mentioned that because when I was a Canon shooter, using a 5D Mark II and a 5D Classic were a real pain because the controls had changed from generation to generation. And then looking at the 5D Mark III, it had changed as well. And so I was always an advocate of having two identical cameras for that reason because I like to work with two, one wide and one tight. And it just comes down to forcing yourself to practice and and get the discipline and training yourself, retraining yourself. It was like when I switched from Nikon to Canon, having to relearn the muscle memory, the feel, and the auto fo- and the focus difference because that was pretty autofocus. So it was like, oh gosh, we're going the other way. But the thing I really kind of like about the Sonys is the fact that, for one, the A7IIs, the A7 Mark II, the A7S Mark II, and the A7R Mark II are physically identical in size. A little bit different in weight, but their shells are exactly the same. Their buttons are exactly the same. The features are different, so you kind of have to know, like, the A7 Mark II it won't do eye autofocus in AFC, but the A7R Mark II does. So that's one thing that you got to kind of know the features. Mm-hmm. But in the book, I also put up what my settings are for the camera for the A7R Mark II because I was trying to make these cameras be as close to the way that I like to work with DSLR so that it was not much of a difference other than just, oh, it's a new camera and a new menu structure. Yeah. And frankly, there's no real way of getting around the fact that you're going to have to put some time in the, in the cockpit to fly these things. And that's why I gave myself a project in that fall of 2014, which was going to force me to shoot these cameras for hours. And it was a football project on the high school football. Yeah, I remember that. That was great stuff. Yeah. Oh, thanks. And so that was also trying to train myself how to do video too, which is a whole nother kettle of fish. So, but it comes down to like determining what you want the camera to do, knowing what the features are, and then learning them in such a way so that you can kind of configure it to match your expectations. And that's why I put those 
default overrides, the custom button, custom button settings, and the function menu settings to clo- as closely mirror the way I was working with DSLR as I could possibly find and take advantage of the special features of the Sony system that are nowhere near present on a DSLR system, you know, like silent shooting and face detection and eye autofocus. Those things are really amazing. And when you realize the power of these cameras, it's like, why would I even want to go back to what I was doing before? I do a good amount of event work. And one of the things that I started doing was I just started approaching it just like shooting it in the way that I shoot the street because I felt like mm-hmm. that's that's my element. So I need to shoot like that when I'm doing an event. And as a result, I came to, came to realize I don't need a bunch of glass. And before, when I had my Canon system, I had like seven or eight lenses. It was insane, right? I don't want to carry that stuff. But I've gotten to the point where I'm like 24, 35, 85. If I have those three lenses, I'm good. And I know other people believe in zooms, other people believe in fixed focal length, but I think one of the things that you, you touch on is that you don't need everything. You just need to work in a way that sort of, that, that is conducive to the way that you see it and the way that you shoot. But if someone is listening to this and, you know, and they're so caught up with this idea that they have to have all this glass, that they have all have to have these premium zoom lenses or these 1.2 aperture fixed focal length lenses, all of which cost a grip of money. How do you sort of keep it practical and reasonable yet still allow yourself to be an effective wedding photographer? Well, I, I used to be kind of like a prime guy and then I was a zoom guy and now I'm like, whatever works for anybody. Yeah. It's like if somebody wants to shoot a wedding with a 35 and an 85, hey, that's fine. I can do that. But I feel really in a way kind of naked because I feel like, gosh, if anything happens, especially if I'm in a foreign location or destination wedding, what happens if I, if that, if that camera and that lens take a hit, like on a rock somewhere, like I was down in Cancun for a wedding and we were out and the, the, the groomsmen went to a, um, one of the underground water, you know, the cenotes Mm -hmm. where they jump into the, the water in the caves. And I'm up there on there and, up there on the top with the guys and they're jumping in and, and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I got this 35 and I've got a, it was back when I was shooting Canon and a 5D. And if, if I slip, if I fall, or if this lens comes off and hits the ground when I am changing lenses to maybe a 50 or something, I am hosed because I didn't have a 24 to 70 with me. All I had was primes. And luckily nothing happened, but it just, it kind of gave me a little flash of panic because I thought, gosh, I just don't want to be in that situation where I am just like have a single point of failure, especially Mm -hmm. on a lens like a 35, which I would use a ton of at a wedding. It was at that point I said, I've got to, I've got to figure out a way to to travel with this stuff. Even if I don't use it, I want to have it. It's a pain in the butt to carry it. But if I need it, I want it. Like there's times when I'm shooting primes and I think, gosh, I wish I had a, a zoom right now. And then there's times I'm shooting zooms and I think, oh, I wish I had a prime right now. Because this is what happened when I was in newspapers too. Because I realized that for me, the way I shoot is whatever kind of is, is appearing that day and kind of whatever mood I'm in with the gear. And if I want it, I want to grab it. I want to have it there. I don't want to carry it necessarily, but I want to have it close enough so I can get it. Mm. And so I'm like, whatever works. If, if you want to shoot with LED lights or if you just want to use speed lights, man, Go for it. Whatever works for you. I just don't want to have a single point of failure. I just want to be backed up. And it's just kind of like this newspaper person in me that had to deliver the photos for the newspaper. And now I think actually it's even more, you know, more relevant because these are memories for people that they're never, that's going to be one day and then that's never going to happen like that for them ever again. To me, it's much more meaningful to them than some newspaper that is wrapping fish tomorrow. You know what I'm saying? It's just like there's a lot more at stake now, I think, personally. One of the things that I love about Squarespace is that they are always working on something new. And that's especially the case with their templates, the foundation from which you get to build your custom website. Now, they recently came out with two new templates, 
called York and Lang. But if you're a photographer, especially a photographer whose work focuses on projects, you have to check out the Lang template. It's especially ideal for photographers who produce series or personal projects as it plays those images and texts across the full screen. And navigation is beautiful, it's seamless, it's just stunning. It's so gorgeous to look at. You have to check it out. You should really take a look at it and take it for a spin. So start your free trial today with no credit card required at squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code CANDIDFRAME at checkout to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. One of the things that you write in the, in the book that's interesting is about uh, the different hats that you have to wear. You know, that of a counselor, that of a director, that of a psychologist. And it's so true, so true that it's... that. Being the kind of photographer that people remember and want to recommend, half of it is the photographs, but the other half is how you treated them and how you related to them. And I wanted, I wanted to make sure that I talked, talked to you about those, those different roles. Tell me how you came to the point of realizing, oh, this is more than just me making great pictures. It goes way back. I mean, it goes back to my newspaper days, my first internship. I remembered it was in Milwaukee, and I had come out of college and had this summer where I was working, and I was doing three or four assignments a day. And I was forced into a situation where it's like, I have to deliver. So what I did is I wrote out this little script almost of what I would say to people, almost like a sales script. And I would say, hi, I'm Paul. I'm with the Journal and Sentinel. I just made your photograph. Would it be okay if I get your name in case we use the photograph in the paper? And almost 98% of the time, people would say, sure. And they'd give me their name and their age or something like that. Or, and that was back in the day. So it was a little bit different. It was not, it was in the 80s. So it wasn't like in the 2000s when people got super freaked. Mm -hmm. But I still feel like that was training in getting comfortable being uncomfortable. And that was really oh, almost yeah. like a sales position. So I had to push myself out there because I knew I had 30 minutes to make something good. And then I had to go to the next assignment because I had three or four of them stacked in a row. I had to, and I was like, my goal at the beginning of that summer was to rework my portfolio from beginning to end. Therefore, I knew I had to make portfolio photographs from little mundane assignments. And that meant people had to be on my side. They had to basically do that for me. They gave me those photos. Yeah. That was a gift to me, but it was because how I was interacting with them and how I put myself into that world, into their world. And that was the best training. And so now wedding is, it's just like normal for me. To, yeah. It's just like, I go in and I want to be everybody's friend. I want them to know me and like me, even though I want them to just forget about me too, which is an ironic kind of juxtaposition. I want them to like me so much that they feel comfortable enough to be themselves in front of my camera. Mm -hmm. And then I feel like I can make the kind of photos that I want to make. One of the most interesting things uh, in, in, in the book is when you're describing all the different hats you have to wear, uh, that of, uh, you know, a director, a counselor, a psychiatrist, all these things. But the director particularly stood out for me because this idea that you as a photographer have to step in and take charge, even though it's not your day, technically. As the photographer, you have to be willing to be able to get what you need. And that sometimes means, you know, pulling people out of whatever they're doing and saying, I need this to happen. And I think it's probably one of the most, one of the more difficult things to do uh, but as you just described, when you get people on your side, it makes that easier to do. For people for whom that doesn't come naturally or they haven't had the experience that you've had in, in working with a newspaper um, or having trouble doing that, what are some suggestions that you have in terms of being able to get past that sort of anxiety and that trepidation to be able to be assertive and get what you need for the photographs? You have to do it. You just have to to do it because there's no nothing that I can say that's going to just reach down and give somebody confidence. They are basically going to have to put themselves in that position where they're you know, going to have to speak to somebody and 
clearly say what they want, what they need. And it just is a function of time and practice. And if somebody's coming along as a second photographer for somebody, that's probably the best way to do it if you're in the wedding world and not coming from a newspaper background. But, you know, even as a newspaper photographer, sometimes the newspaper world was kind of brusque. And so it's not just asking about it, but it's ask, it's how you ask about it. So you always, you know, I was really lucky. I was raised by a salesman who read the Napoleon Hill books and the Think and Grow Rich and the Dale Carnegie, uh, you know, How to Win Friends and Influence People. And so I was reading those as a teenager and it made a big difference, I think, in me because I was always trying to put myself in the shoes of the people that I'm photographing. I don't have any God-given right to be there. But at a wedding, they want me to be there. And I am only looking out for their best interests. I want to make photographs that not only I love, but they're going to love and that they're going to treasure. So they know that I'm working on their behalf. And so it's really, I think it comes from a place of knowing that these people trust you. They want you to do what's best in your opinion. And you just have to realize that you can't be perfect but you're going to constantly tweak it and evolve as you get older and the more you do it. So you just have to force yourself. And it's hard because if you're naturally prone to watching and being a shy person, it's not, it's not going to be easy. Yeah. So you just have to do it. And I think some, some people might be better off being a second photographer where they may not have to interact or they, you know, be a third photographer where they can just hang back or maybe shoot video where they don't have to maybe interact maybe as much, but wearing the first photographer's hat as a director does take practice. Yeah. It is shedding a skin to get to the comfortable level. I mean, one of the, for me, I've been married, well, it's going to be 25 years soon. And yeah. Congratulations. I think, thank you. But I think one of the things that I think that is so valuable for us is that we have printed photographs. And I know that one of the sort of packages that people offer there are these sort of shoot and burn where they provide people. It used to be on a CD or now it's a USB stick or a small hard drive. And if I'm asked by a couple uh, about their wedding and their wedding photography, I tell them, whatever you end up spending, whatever you end up, you know, whoever you end up hiring, get a, get a printed book. Because I think in the end, having the, having the book, is is going to be much more valuable in the, in, in the long in the long run because even if you do have the have the images on your hard drive and nothing happens to them, being able to just sit there and share a book with someone rather than having to pull up your computer or, or something like that is, uh, I think, incredibly valuable. But for you, when you are you know you're sitting down with a client and they're talking about what they want and what their needs are. Tell me about a little about your approach when it comes to the, the, the album, because some people think of that as old school, but just because it's old school doesn't mean it's not, it's not right. So, so tell me about your whole approach and your whole thought about the value of a, of a, of a book. All my collections include an album, whether it's a book, a lower cost photo book, or a real leather-bound album. All of my collections have it because of that reason. I believe it's not just an option, it should be mandatory. That being said, I have done weddings in the past where I photographed and they downloaded the files. And, you know, for some, it's a budgetary concern. For others, it's they don't put a value in a book. And you know what? I can lead a horse to water, but I can't make them drink mm -hmm. sometimes. So I, I do say to them, if you do nothing else, just take these and just get four by six prints made and put them in a box because at least then they'll have a print. Because I think this whole the notion of the tactile experience only gains value as time goes on. And that's why now in my portrait business, I do portraits of people for my, not my headshots, but my portraits of families and kids. Every photograph they purchase is a matted print that comes with the digital file the same size as the print. And what that means is that they will then have the digital file to make subsequent prints, but they will at least have a printed photograph from me that they can frame. 
And the reason is, is because in 20 and 30 years, when their kids are the owners of that photograph, they won't need some kind of a reader or Mm -hmm. a pad to see it. They can just put it in their hand and look at it like a book. So I've always, with the portraiture and in the way I'm doing my pricing and packaging now, that's what I do because I believe it's really critical that our children have that when they become adults. I'm thinking about 20, 30 years from now. I'm not just thinking about this year. I'm thinking about that and the same for albums too, for wedding albums. It's, this is something that's the first family heirloom and it's really important to have it. You know, the big thing that uh, photographers probably want to ask is besides what equipment you use is how you determine your pricing. Yeah. And you have an interesting conversation with a professional photographer from Orange County in the book. And uh, he talks about the whole idea of, of coming up with a fair price. Because he, from what I was reading, he came up during the era where uh, the big destination wedding, uh, the, the celebrity photographer charging, you know, astronomical amounts of money for a wedding were really sort of prevalent. And that's probably toned down to, to some extent. But... You know, rather than trying to figure out, okay, how much do I charge? What are some of the things that you think people have to think about in terms of valuing their time, the amount of energies they're going to have to put into, rather than really trying to see what other people are charging? What are some of the points that you think people really need to look at within, you know, themselves and what they're doing to really come up with a quote unquote fair price? Well, there's no one size fits all pricing. And the thing that they have to look at is how, ma- how much do they want to work? Because price mm-hmm. can be kind of a regulator. A lower price photographer is probably going to have a bigger marketplace. But then is that the kind of marketplace you want to be playing in? So the other thing to consider is who is your ideal client? What do they value? What's their age? What demographics are they coming from? What are your hard physical costs? What's your overhead? What's your gear cost? What is your post-production cost, whether it's your time or theirs? How much time do people actually put into a wedding? I'd say for an eight-hour wedding, they're going to put in almost 40 hours of back behind-the-scenes time and post-production following the wedding just because it's a real, real time sink. Post-production can eat you alive. So you know, there's all those factors. Do you have a second photographer? What does that person charge? And you're going to figure, you're going to have a range of, you know, $250 to $500 or $750 or more, you know, it depends on what your budget is. What do you want to make at the end of the day? What is it worth for you to give up going away from your family on a a Saturday or a Sunday to maybe travel on a Thursday to be there for a Friday, Saturday wedding? So what is it going to cost? I mean, that's one of the things that I love so much about Jim is most of his work is done locally, although he does travel a little bit, but he has created a real niche for himself. And a big part of it is is he's priced very, very fairly. I would say he's even underpriced given his professionalism, his commitment, his support staff and all that stuff. But Jim just is a He's a, just one of those kind of guys that just delivers the goods all the time. And he's got a great personality to go with it as well. So he's kind of come up with this kind of old school approach, like you were saying, where it's built on a fair price as he sees it and his clients do as well. The ability to create albums and thus an upsell, upsell potential for him to in, increase the sale. That's You want to have that as well. But he's also... Once, once people have great coverage as well. So he does a lot of weddings. I mean, he's, he's carved out quite a niche for himself and rightly so because he's worked hard, he's earned it. And I love it because Jim is still there. He's like, in a way, he and there's another photographer in town called Frank Salas. And I look at those two guys as just like steady guys. You know, they're mm-hmm. the marathoners. They're in this thing for the long haul. And there's a lot of crash and burns a lot of shooting stars that just kind of yeah. hit the atmosphere and blew up after the crash in 2008 and 9. So I love to see these guys do so well because they deliver great photos, they deliver great value, and they deliver it with great personality too. You know, that, that's so true about how, how many people come and go. Because photography is very demanding. But when you, when you think back to 
yourself, those guys, and the people who've gone by the wayside. And you think about the people who are going to be picking up this book who don't just want to do it just for, you know, a short-term monetary return, but really are interested in making a career of it. What quality do you think that kind of, that person has to have in order to to be able to sustain themselves through the race, all the economic up and ups and downs and all the things that you know as, as a business owner you're going to expect. What, what do you think people really need to think about when making the decision to not only become a wedding photographer, but to make a life out of it? They have to love photography at the core. It's got to be foundational. They have to have endurance, both physical and mental, because Physically, a wedding day is demanding. And then to create work that continues to grow and be something that people want to buy and value, that takes real commitment. They have to, I think they have to constantly be evolving and improving. You can't just sit back and make the same photographs you've always made. You have to continue to try to be surprised. And you have to kind of say, okay, that I know is good. That one I know is safe. What can I do that's different, that's better, that I've never seen before? And if people have a goal of going to a wedding and creating one stellar portfolio-worthy photograph from each wedding, that's going to give them something to aspire to. I mean, it's what I did when I was an intern. I wanted to recreate my portfolio at the end of my summer internship. That meant that I had to be making those kind of photographs every day along the way. And then we're going to sort it out at the end and see what still rises to the top. Mm. So it is a physically demanding job. It is an emotionally demanding job. And it's also, there's a liability and a responsibility. Like when you said that people will hopefully want to be in it for the long haul. I hope that they don't get into wedding thinking that it's just quick, easy money. Because frankly, there's easier ways to make money. There's <laughs> less less tools that are required to do it right. I mean, if you want to have the, the best business model in photography, it is not wedding photography. It is portrait photography by far. Wedding photography is something that I do despite the fact that I know that my average per hour is higher as a portrait photographer than a wedding photographer. But I love weddings because I love the arc of the story and I love being able to spend time with people and witness that event happen. Mm. So I know that that's a, there's a cost to it in terms of time. But I still do it anyway. And so that's kind of like I think people need to know what it is going in. And they have to realize that people aren't just doing this as a lark getting married. Hey, man, this is like serious. Yeah. They want this stuff to be delivered. Now, I, I know some people get into it and they say, look, I've just been, been a second photographer a few times. And I mean I've read some stories of younger photographers now that have done it only a couple times or three times as a second. And then they say, hey, man, I'm going to go off and – charge as a first photographer and beyond. Those guys have bigger ones than me because I look at this as like, <laughs> that is damn scary. Mm -hmm. And I would not want to put myself or my family at that kind of risk, but that's them. So they may have less at ri to risk. So, mm -hmm. But I really think that those are the three kind of core elements for a photographer. You know, physically being in it for the long haul, loving photography, and then constantly improving and evolving. Yeah. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for listeners to discover and explore. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Okay. That's a tricky one. I would say for a photographer who's really wanting to document life, I'm going to say look at David Burnett because yeah. David Burnett has been doing great photographs since the 60s and he's been constantly trying things and pushing things but always being true to his vision and really creating a body of work that really says David Burnett and that's the kind of guy who can do anything he could do portraits he could do documentary work he could do sports he can do it all and when I was coming up as a photographer David Burnett was the guy that I looked to. And when I first met him, when I moved to DC, I was kind of like the, the, the playground basketball player meeting Jordan for the first time. It was just like, 
kind of a, you know, like I was like tongue tied in what to say. And, you know, it's been really great to get, have gotten to know David over my career because he's just a great guy. He's a funny guy. He's really smart. He looks at the world in a really unique way. He's got incredible imitations, but he has great photos and he continues to make great photographs. He's a photographer that even after all those years has not lost the importance of play. Because right. I, I saw him, uh, I think it was the Olympics or the Super Bowl with a Graflex. Yeah. And I was right. like, damn, that is just awesome. Someone who's just going to go, I'm going to just do my thing. I'm going to play. I'm going to experiment. I'm just gonna, not going to get just locked into doing things in one particular way and, and, and not experiment and play. And I think, yeah, he's, he's wonderful. Now, we need to start in a Kickstarter campaign to get David Burnett to do his retrospective book. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Every time I see him, I say, David, when are we going <laughs> to do this book? Because, I mean, he has got such a body of work and stuff that, I mean, I even find stuff that I'd never seen before. So check him out. And he's, he's a really terrific guy. And where can people go to find out more about you and your work? Well, if you go to my portfolio site, it's paulf, as in Frank, Giro.com, G-E-R-O.com. And, and my blog is paulfgiroblog.com. And then I have a photo workshop site called girophotoworkshop.com. And uh, if you don't mind, I wanted to make a special offer for folks from the, who listen to the show who might want to buy the book. I'm offering a 25% discount for the digital download so that if it's okay, we could put that absolutely link in the, in the show notes so that people can go there and, and download the book. And if they have any questions, I really would love to hear their questions. If they have any suggestions for what can make the book better, what maybe I missed and what things they would like to see in subsequent books. I would love to hear from folks because I, I love teaching and I love sharing my knowledge so that hopefully the next generation can carry the baton. Oh, Paul, thank you so much. It's always, always a pleasure and an honor to have a chance to sit down and talk with you. So thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks again for joining me. Please remember that you do make a big difference to our show. Take the time today to write a review in the iTunes store. You can also support the show by making donations of any amount to the Candid Frame using our PayPal account. You'll find the link for this in the show notes and on the Candid Frame website. To access our complete archive of interviews, download the free Candid Frame app, available for Apple iOS, Android, and Windows 8. Links for each can be found in the show notes and the website at thecandidframe.com. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. <laughs>